here we are today. We're going to talk about um, grief related to working with people who are experiencing homelessness, grief related to the pandemic. I don't know when we talk now whether we're, I guess we're really not being able to say the pandemic is over, although I know our, be, our lives are to some extent going back to normal, but to some extent not. Our clients, some of our clients have returned quote unquote to normal, but many haven't. So I, I don't know where your clientele is. Um, we're gonna talk about Bill J, William Warden's 10 steps of grief therapy, some grief strategies from Robert Niemeyer. We'll see a little video. Um, applying techniques to working with homeless persons and during the pandemic, and a little bit of research on grief counseling. So that's where we're going to go today. Um, so I kind of want to just find out how many of the group, um, I guess we didn't really arrange a poll, but how many of you, how should we do this? Um, put in the chat, if you could write it in the chat, are, are you working with people who are homeless? Do you have clientele that are homeless? Just so I have an idea of how many of us are working with homeless people. If you could just put in yes or no, and maybe Christine, if you could tell me what the preponderance is. Are you working yes. with people? A lot of yeses, yeah. Um, we have someone else that's working with children. Children who are homeless, I guess. Or they said no working with children. But a majority of uh, folks joining um, yeah. are working with um, folks that are yes. at house. Um, okay. There yeah. was a comment earlier, someone mentioned that um, they feel like we're all going through grieving as a country. Um, just mm -hmm. a lot of tragedies that have happened recently. So, I mean, that's something um, that was on uh, someone's mind that they brought up. Yeah, earlier. you know, I'm, I'm very glad you um, put that in because I, you know, I, I mean, there's a lot of reactions to so many grievous things that are happening in our country, in our world. Um, you know, we could go back a couple years to, you know, a lot of losses and grievous things, but especially recently, there's been very many shootings and very, very hurtful experiences, not to mention war. Um, and you all know all these things, but thank you for recognizing that. Yeah, okay. Okay, so another question I have for you, and you know, we are a small enough group that if you wanna unmute and speak, you can, if you're not, if you wanna put it in the chat, but um, what do you notice about grieving, loss and grieving among homeless people? Like, what are some of the things what are some of the things you are noticing about loss and about grief among your homeless clients who are not housed? Um, just a lot of like very normal, um, sort of normalization around um, overdoses. Um, so when you say normalizing, it were a lot of overdoses, so a lot of loss, of persons to overdose, it sounds like, and normalizing it, just sort of it, it becoming too repeated to so where people get used, almost numb to it, maybe. 
Yeah. Yeah. I must say when I heard about the shooting in Texas last yesterday, it, it felt almost like numbing to it because like it was hard to take in yet another mass shooting. So it, it, those aren't the same, but they're, I, I know I had a feeling that was kind of like that. Well, I think kind of her comment about normalization, maybe normalization just around a lot of things that seem kind of contrary to how we believe because not every homeless client that we have that is experiencing homelessness, homelessness uses drugs. Um, although they may be living in a situation where they witness it or other um, addiction. But um, I think that they have a tendency to hold on to things that to us seem unimportant or weighting them down, but those things give them a sense of security and safety. And that is their sense of normalization. A lot of things seem contrary. Um, they will, for example, re uh, say, I don't want to go to a shelter or I don't want housing because I have a dog and my dog is my only family or my cat is my only family. And if I go to the shelter, I can't have my pet with me. Or if I take housing, I can't have my, so they've already lost so much and we want to take something else from them to give them something that we perceive to be very important. Like it's the most important thing is to be housed, but not for them. The most important thing is a sense of safety. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And I, I, I think part of what it seems like you're describing is other people with that have been homeless and experiencing homelessness may find safety in things that don't make sense to us. But there's a really fe a fear of losing even that that sense of safety or predictability, you said. Yeah, they've lost so much already. Yeah. Yep. And so I, I get it that, you know, from our perspective, we want to offer some, we think we're offering security by saying, look, we found housing for you, or we found mm -hmm. this shelter and you can have a bed to sleep on. But depending on what they've been on, that might not feel safe to them. And let's mm -hmm. face it, shelters are not safe places. Yeah, yeah. So there's really a lot of loss of safety um, at, at, or, and security. And so they might need to hold on to some, something else to provide safety and security. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Christina, anything in the, in the chat about other losses and grieving processes for people that are homeless? Someone mentioned increased substance use. Okay, yeah, yeah. Serious, serious issues among our people who are homeless. It, I think kind of in some of what you're, you're saying and, and the couple of other comments, it's hard to know how to help, what, what to label as a loss and what is a loss for us may be different than what is a loss for the people, persons we're working with. And then does there, do there these losses, whether it's our perception of losses or their stated perception, their stated perception of losses, does it need processing? Does it need to be talked about? And I think deciding that can be very, very um, complicated and take a lot of kind of clinical thought about whether we bring it, try to bring grief therapy or processing of losses into the therapy. 
Um, so we need to really, really be thinking about that. All right, I'm gonna go back to the slideshow. So I think some of this was implied in what, what several of you were just saying, but some of the losses that people experiencing homelessness are experiencing due, due to the homeless. So there's losses that created the homelessness in the first place, but right now, first I'm gonna be talking about kind of losses related to being homeless. And certainly safety is something that is lost. And people will try to find as much safety as they can, and it might, but it might not be safe from the lives we live or the lives they used to live. Um, loss of physical comfort, um, for instance, warmth, or in the, in the summer here in Southern California, loss of ability to be cool, loss of bathroom availability, et cetera, like lots and lots of loss of physical comfort. Often loss of medical attention, loss of familiarity, although people develop routine, but from before loss of familiarity, I think a loss of a sense of really being able to hope for much something much different in the future, loss of hope. Um, certainly at certain levels, loss of status and esteem and self-esteem. Um, so these are just some of the things. Then of course, there are a lot of losses that lead to being homeless. Um, you know, that's some of the flip side of some of these. So there's a whole cascade of losses that people are, who are homeless have experienced, but whether or not we wanna work with that from a mental health perspective, I think is very tricky. And we're gonna talk about that as we go along here. I was look, kind of looking up mental health treatment for people who are homeless. And a lot of it has to do with um, providing services, providing housing, case management, which all are really, really important. But there's not a lot written about psychotherapy or, per, per, you know, we're, we're talking about in this class, grief therapy. There's not a lot written about that for people who are homeless. I found a little bit, um, but so just some of the, the things that I, you know, I, I did I identify. Um, for one thing, people that are, we, and we know this, how much people are dying as homeless. And one article from a couple of years ago, no, yeah, a year and a half ago, but the statistics from a couple years ago, several people are dying each day. Homeless people are dying each day in Los Angeles, which is kind of shocking. Um, some of the losses that they have experienced, a loss of their prior community. Some people who are homeless create, as we know, create communities um, in, in where they live, but some don't, and some do not wanna be part of those communities. Um, loss of health, um, fearing illness, fearing death, um, feeling kind of overwhelmed. The, the number of losses can really lead to feeling overwhelmed and then numbing and denial, leading, you know, often to an urge to escape and substances. And so this is one article that I, I found talking about 
some of the mental health issues with homeless people. Um, another article from a couple of years ago talked about the losses other than death, grieving for the loss of a familiar place, for time um, and for opportunities for person's future and found that grieving for the non-death losses of a person's place and what is familiar, um, loss of time and the opportunities go largely unnoticed. That a lot of times, as I think you mentioned in your little summary, we're often as providers focused on getting them housed, just the loss of home, therefore get them housed. And I think our larger society is really intent on getting those people off the street because I think our culture doesn't like seeing the homeless people, seeing the difficulties and the, the sadness of the, their situation or seeming to us anyway. And we get so focused on that and our culture is so focused on that that we don't notice or really are often not given the time and space to attend to these other non-death losses and death losses. Um, just kind of going back to this of if four or five people die from homelessness every day, not from homelessness, but while homeless every day, most homeless people have lost their, you know, their, their community members with um, amongst their homeless companions. Um, so another article I talked about was just that the people that are homeless often have recently and or not so recently experienced many, many losses. So these authors found that of the homeless men they had interviewed, most of the men had, had experienced separation and or divorce and a job inter injury, substance abuse, insecure uh, employment, and financial losses that those all contributed to becoming homeless. So, you know, as is probably pretty obvious, people that are homeless, often it's losses that contribute to them becoming homeless. Um, in one article that I found about talking about grief, talked about how homeless people may not be ready to talk about their grief. And another article, Grieving is challenging. And I thought this comment, this phrase was really important, helpful. There's no bereavement leave from homelessness. There's no time to grieve, no place to grieve, no privacy. It's like soldiers in the battlefield. You can't really grieve. I mean, I don't know that you can't, but it's very tricky and it may not be wise to grieve when you're in the midst of being homeless. You're like, soldiers can't really grieve while they're in war um, because they just, you just have to get back out there and, and keep yourself alive. Um, so I, I have, did wanna also ask you if you would chat or speak up, in what ways have you tried, what's happened I imagine many of us have tried to help people who are homeless process their grief, whether it's grief of what they lost leading into homelessness, grief 
because of being homeless or grief while being homeless of other people that have died on the streets. What, yeah, what, what experience have you had in trying to help them process grief? Okay, so just some thoughts. We've already kind of talked about some of this, but um, I think us, those of us that are trained as therapists or even you know became therapists because we wanted to be talk to people about their feelings, we, I know I have this impulse to try to get people to talk about their feelings um, and often right after a loss or a trauma. But the research on probing for feelings immediately after a trauma or a disaster shows that it's not helpful and can be even be harmful. So some years ago, um, we used to do um, kind of disaster interventions where mental health providers were brought to the scene and we we got people to talk about their feelings about what had just happened a disaster of some sort and it, it, it was found to be not helpful and could even hurt that like Kubler-Ross's phases denial and shock and denial comes first I think for a reason and I think you know in Bowlby talks about numbing and the different theorists have different parts right after a loss or a trauma, there's something very natural about numbing out, denial, shock. And I think trying to help people talk right away does them a disservice. So I think we wanna give them the space to be in that buffer zone kind of. Homelessness is often a series of losses and traumas. And in these situations, what people really need first is practical help and improved social and practical supports, which you know a lot of our system these days is doing a lot of practical support. But when and, and how to support grieving is a tricky process. So some thoughts, these are just some thoughts that I put down on the slide, but we listen, you know, we listen and do your really good listening. And that is probably the most important thing, caring, compassionate, reflective listening, empathic. And really try to use, be patient, be patient and try to use our intuition about whether they're wanting to or ready to talk about the loss. And then possibly gently encouraging them, but not pushing. And that's the, you know, a little bit of a clinical judgment, how much is gentle encouragement, but how much is pushing? Um, they may need to be in the numbing and shocking to protect themselves. Um, and they may feel that grieving will make them vulnerable. And I think that is really something to keep in mind when we consider how much to ask them to talk about their losses or trauma. That You know, when you, I know for me, if I tell to somebody about my sad feelings or my lost feelings or my scared feelings, I feel more vulnerable and increased vulnerability on the street can be dangerous. So um, we don't wanna get them to have their defenses down so much that they, they can't like protect themselves from stuff that's happening around them on the street. Um, you could do some less emotionally deep processing, but more symbolic or ceremonial 
enactments. So when people have these losses and you think it would help them to process it, but getting too emotionally vulnerable would not be wise, we can do something that's a little more like maybe akin to a grief ritual from their culture, like we talked about at the end of last time, um, <clears throat> or something that's more symbolic, like for people that it would make sense to saying a rosary or um, something from their, you know, either ethnic or religious background. Um, or, you know, I, I think setting up a shrine, we see these often by the side of the street or somewhere where a person did die. Um, but you, this could be done for non-death losses as well. But doing, again, something symbolic can be helpful without it opening up lots of emotional vulnerability. So my next question for you all is, what have you noticed regarding grieving? Let's just not talk about homeless people because we, we could mix it, but it, well, it doesn't matter. Um, what are your, some of your thoughts about what you've noticed with the, with the pandemic? COVID, quarantining, sheltering at home, the whole piece of the last couple of years. What have you noticed with loss and grief related to the last couple of years? It, it, particularly that the pandemic and so on. I think that it seems that people are struggling more to process the grief and being more stuck. At this point, getting stuck, yeah. Or having been stuck. I mean, you know, all the rituals that were involved when you lose somebody were, were stopped. Yeah. Because of the pandemic. So yeah. not having so, funerals, not having, you know, in some cultures, it's, it's necessary for them to do the viewing and they do it for a couple of days. And so not having that. Mm -hmm. A lot of interruption or a lot of not, uh, not being able to do the, what would have been familially or culturally or religiously appropriate for processing you know, the ceremonies right after a loss or during a loss or even before a loss. Yeah, so that, that has leads to a lot of stuckness. Um, yeah. Other thoughts, Christina, is there a couple of comments in the chat? Yeah, someone mentioned grieving of um, not being able to socialize in person for a very long time. Yep. Mm -hmm. And then also processing multiple, many losses at the same time. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I work primarily with clients on um, employment and getting getting out into the community. Yeah, and mm -hmm. um, and um, a, a big sense of safety, the loss of sense of safety, and um, the just the loss of time to contribute towards roles like education, educational opportunities. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was pregnant and had my baby. You know, I know for some clients going through that too. So I didn't have any baby showers or wasn't able to see any family yeah. help. Yeah just the loss of support. But yep. my clients, I think the biggest thing that they find as an impairment is like a lot of the available jobs now are these jobs that have a lot of contact with people and they still don't feel it's safe yeah. to in the community yeah. and that there's like, they feel like there's this not shared perspective, you know, that there's a lot of people that deny that this was an issue or that need to be safe too. And that's difficult for them. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 
a lot, uh, not a lot of, um, not a lot of validation of how much the loss of safety for loss of safe job opportunities. Um, yeah, a lot there. Someone mentioned loss of self or feeling as mm -hmm. they can't function or be the same person they were before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, a lot. Okay. Thank you for, for sharing. Um, yeah, I, I just got to, you know, I think we all know this, but I'll go ahead and read it anyway, just to, just because the, the multiplicity of losses, I think it helps to enumerate some of them, elaborate on them, but separation, you know, um, loss of socialization, one of you said, but the opposite side of the coin is the separation from loved ones, loss of freedom, you know, confinement we've had, or many people have had, not all people, like some people haven't been able to confine themselves. Uncertainty, lack of safety, lack of safety health-wise, lots of death of relatives, job losses, loss of ties with work colleagues, self-image, self-identity, money, money loss, loss of health, physical inactivity, loss of healthy eating, loss of accessible healthcare, in, in um, a lot of, one of, we work with older adults, especially in, at Heritage Clinic, and a lot of people died from COVID, but a lot of other people died from other untreated serious health issues that they couldn't go to the doctor for, or the hospital wouldn't take them, that the hospital was full, or things like that. Um, loss of schooling, loss of childcare, loss of familiar daily patterns, and it's really, I'm finding hard for people to get back into previously familiar patterns, even if they're feeling healthy, safe health-wise. Um, and some of the research has found, as you know, we all probably know, but just to, to cite an increase in depression, which has been greater among younger adults, there's been less of an increase among older adults, which is kind of interesting. Um, an increase in anxiety, stress and PTSD, an increase in some delusions and psychotic in behavior. And I've noticed in our older adults an increase in a, in a type of delirium based on um, social isolation and sensory deprivation. Um, as we know to an increase in alcohol and drug abuse. Um, <clears throat> So given the multiplicity of losses, which makes grieving really complicated and hard to resolve, not being with the person while someone, a loved one was dying, delays in getting the body or as not even being able to get the body when they wanted to, a lack of saying goodbyes, I think a lot of ambiguity about losses, which can make processing it harder um, guilt and worry about their loved one dying without them being there, with them dying alone. As we said, not being able to follow or attend culturally normative rituals, um, making it really hard to resolve the losses and contributing to mental illness. Um, yeah, I think we've already kind of said all that. So, um, let's just talk about what are some of the things we might do to try to help. I'll go through a few things and then please add if you have other things to add. 
But I think, what do we do now? You know, um, losses are continuing. It's not that they're over, but things maybe are kind of stabling out. Um, but I think, you know, we can help them create rituals now. Um, and I think while talking about the loss is part of what we do as therapists, um, helping to create a ritual for some clients that might be better than processing it and or both, um, doing something kind of concrete, whether that is going through a kind of a, um, a staged um, memorial service or even a staged um, funeral type service. Um, you could you know, use candles, use prayers or poems or scriptures that are, you know, if, if any are appropriate for the client or, you know, if, if a prayer or a scripture is not appropriate, some kind of poem or reading. Bringing friends and or family members together now, um, either virtually or telephonically or in person if people want to now, to remember the person who died. Or just, you know, in a therapeutic context, you and the client. Um, help them plan for an actual memorial service when it feels safe for them to do so. Facilitate them talking with others who lost the same loved one. Like sometimes people will not have talked about it with siblings, cousins, um, in-laws, neighbors, and you could kind of encourage them or help them make connection with other people that also lost the same person. Um, and maybe go one by one through the different kinds of losses that have happened over the last couple of years. Help them talk about it gradually. Um, helping them starting to, for persons that are still not leaving home, you know, some people need to not be leaving home, of course, because of their medical conditions and how they view COVID at this point. But for those that are starting to be okay with leaving, but still haven't, to do a very gradual kind of systematic opening the door, stepping out the front door, going to the sidewalk, um, you know, going down the block, just kind of gradually helping them. Um, help them to realize it's not gonna feel comfortable at the beginning um, and gradually re-engage. Any other thoughts about helping them now with the pandemic losses? Christina, are there any observations you wanna read from the chat or any of you wanna speak up about kind of how, let's see what my question was. You know, how are you trying to facilitate grieving now or what has or hasn't worked? All right. <clears throat> so now I'm gonna kind of shift gears um, from those top two topics we kind of started with. I mentioned the book William, written by J. William Warden last week, Grief Counseling and Grief Therapy, which I think is a really nice uh, approach and, and really, really readable, very readable kind of book. It's not, it's not excessively professional or jargony, um, but he talks about the tasks of normal grieving, which we already went through last week, but accepting the reality that the loss occurred. So kind of getting through that first numbing kind of phase, um, experiencing the pain of grief, which is often the heart of grief therapy, adjusting to life without the lost thing or person, 
and reinvesting in new relationships and activities. So he lists based on that, those are kind of the nor quote unquote normal grieving. Um, when we're in a place where we're, we're needing, the person is needing help with grieving because the normal process just has gotten stuck somewhere. These are, he has 10 steps um, for grief therapy. So uh, establishing a therapeutic alliance, obvious, you know, it's obvious for any of us therapists, but super important and probably the most important part, even though we sometimes bypass it because we think it's too simple. Ruling out medical problems. So getting medical attention for the medical problems, seeing if the reason for their mood is, is a, a thyroid problem or a, a another kind of medical problem that needs to be treated. Assessing which tasks of these four tasks are an incomplete. And again, it's often number two, um, especially with many of our clients, um, but assessing which tasks of mourning are incomplete Reviving memories of the loss. So this can be a really hard part. Um, our clients often talk or briefly summarize the loss that they've had, um, but they don't really wanna get into the memories of it. That can help to revive a memory, a, an item, an object. Um, but that is sometimes part of our job that is a little uncomfortable. So tell me more about, um, Bob who died during the pandemic. Oh, I don't want to talk about it. Well, you know, I know it doesn't feel good to talk about, but I think it's going to help in the long run if we can kind of get some of those feelings out and, and, and help them to lighten up a little bit. Dealing with the affect and dealing with the lack of affect. Again, this is part of why we revive memories of the loss is to help process the emotion. So the four and five is kind of about really processing the pain, helping the client learn to live without, with the loss and without the disease. What kind of new skills do they need to do? What do they need to try? What do they need to learn how to do? Like some people, um, they're, they lived with their mother all the time, their mother passed. They haven't learned how to handle their finances or they haven't learned how to cook or something like that. Um, seven, explore and diffuse linking objects. So again, that could be like the hairbrush just now, or um, it could be, um, I had a client, a woman who lived with her mother her whole life, pretty much except for a short stint. And she was her mother's caregiver. And a couple, I started to see her a couple years after her mother had passed away. And she kind of held on to all her mother's medications. And I didn't really understand why until I said, okay, bring them in. Let's talk about them. What do this, all these medications mean? And it was her, it was her connection to her caregiving role as for her mother. And part of our job, our, our role was to gradually get rid of um, the medications, her mom's medications. So that was like a linking object. Acknowledging the finality of the loss Exploring the client's fantasy of what will happen if and when she stops grieving and helping the client say goodbye. So these are Warden's 10 steps. Um, don't have to happen in that order. Um, so I just kind of want to go through each of the main tasks that we work on and what are some of the 
roadblocks can be sometimes. <clears throat> so sometimes the person doesn't accept that the loss has occurred. Now, I think like I keep saying, I've said several times, there is a natural period of not accepting the loss. I can't believe my daughter was in that car accident. I can't believe that he died. I, I haven't seen the body. I can't believe it. it. It must not have happened. I'm gonna find him someday. Um, but when that goes on for more of an extended period of time, the person is extending that non-acceptance. Um, and I, I just for an example, I had a client who was very depressed and was three years after her husband had died. And right after her husband had died, she had moved, well, she hadn't moved, she had come to visit her, she and her husband lived in Florida and she had come to LA to visit her daughter. And three years later, she was still with her daughter and she had never gone back to the house in Florida. The house was still you know, kind of just sitting there with all her husband's things, her, her things too. Um, and she, in the term, Warden uses this term mummification, that that's, that house kind of got mummified and all her thoughts and feelings were just repressed, depressed, suppressed, um, so that she was depressed, but she hadn't really processed the loss of her husband um, and all the feelings she had. So, you know, I gradually kind of really gently, but did push her to talk about the meaning of her, the loss of her husband, the, lean, the meaning of her husband in, in her life um, and helping her to talk about it. Other ways people deny the finality of death. Sometimes, I, I don't, I'm gonna say this, you know, in some ways when people say, well, you know, it's fine that he died, I'm gonna see him in heaven. And is very, they're, they're very flat, but let's say they also have a high level of anxiety or they developed an anxiety disorder, but they insist that it doesn't matter that he died because I'm gonna see him in heaven. I think there's a, a sense of, well, spiritually, religiously, you know, that's fine, um, that may very well be true, but there is a loss right now and the person sometimes is not facing or dealing with the actuality of the loss right now. So some of our tools in this part are helping them to tell the story of the loss. Um, and a lot of times, the person will tell the story of the loss in a very short way, maybe in one session, the first session, they say um, how he died. Um, but we need to come back to it so they tell it with more detail in order to help them process the feelings. Um, other tools we can use to help, um, as Warden said in um, task step four, reviving the memories of the loss, we, may need to really slow down the narrative of the story. Um, and that could include going through belongings, linking objects, um, writing a letter to the dead person. It could include spiritual practices, religious rituals, and so on. 
Um, I'm going to show a, a video here. This is a video of Robert Niemeyer talking about retelling the story. So that would include reviving memories of the loss. So to do that, I need to stop sharing. Pacing has to do with how quickly do we move through the story. And the answer is slower than you can ever imagine. Less is more. When in doubt, go slow. Put your foot on the brake, not on the accelerator. Right. Slow it down. Um, I don't know if you guys do this, but when we were, well, you don't really have stones here, do you? You just have sand. But where I come from, we have stones. And when I was a kid, we would go play at the lakes or at the rivers, and we would take the flat stones and, right? This is before video games, obviously. And what would happen when that stone would hit the water going fast? The person who had the most skips won, right? But what would happen, right? It would stay on the surface of the water, wouldn't it? As long as it was going fast. But what would happen when the stone would slow down? It would, it would sink to depth. And so too it is in storytelling to have the person sink to depth, slow the story down. What's the next thing you remember visually, Marnix, about that? The next scene that comes to mind. Who was there? Paint the picture for me. You say your sister was with you. Where was she standing around that hospital bed? On the other side, he says. Did you meet her eyes in that moment? Yes. When my father died, I looked up and I saw her. What did you see in those eyes? that told you where she was emotionally, psychologically in that moment. Just the pain, the pain so like mine. What word would you give that pain? Do you get the idea? Slow it down. The other piece is you need to consider the dosing of the session. When I was talking with Gail. We said, I can see, Gail, that you really need to tell this story. Right. I take you seriously. You say you feel like you've never been able <clears throat> you've never been able to really say the story aloud to others. Um, how much time do you imagine we should set aside for that? I don't think an hour is enough, Bob. I don't either. How much time do you think would be right? Could you do an hour and a half? Of course I could. Let's look for a time to make that happen. And if it turns out to be a bit much, we can shorten it, right? So we negotiate the duration, the timing. When do you feel ready to begin this? I think I'd like to begin next week, but I don't know if I can do it every week. Like Pat said, it's pretty intense. We'll pace it the way you like it, right? the way you need it. Facing the idea of seeking empowerment not simply as a victim of the story, but as the protagonist of the story and someone who even achieves a certain measure of authorship over the story. There are special ways that you can do this, one of which I'll show you in a few minutes. And then 
the idea of doing that in the presence of a witness. That is someone, a secure base, who can also be an audience to the telling, whose presence, whose attention, whose responsiveness validates the story, helps the person contain the story without rushing to solution, and to then sort of speak uh, with the person about who else would benefit from knowing a part of this? Who else could help bear this hard knowledge within your network? Well, I think Beverly could. She's very spiritual. What might we say to Beverly? And is there a role that I can play with that? No, no, I think I can do it. So these things are negotiated. Bracing, pacing, facing. So that just gives you a little picture of the part about retelling the story. So any any thoughts about the little video? It's just a short little clip, but I think Robert Niemeyer again is a, a, a prime expert in the grief therapy field and he has a lot, a lot of really good books and just a lot on the internet too about techniques um, for doing grief therapy. And, but I, the, particularly about retelling the story, the idea of slowing it down um, he really slows down when he talks. Um, but the idea of really pulling out for details, I mean, that he was going super detailed about the story of when this person that he was talking about passed away. Um, there's so many aspects of the story. There's both the story of the loss, but then there's the story of the relationship before the loss and the meaning. Okay, so that would be a different way of approach than numbing or not approaching the, the, the pain of the loss. So in task two from William Warden is experiencing the pain of the grief, working with emotion. Again, this is like the heart of the therapy. So our clients often speak in general terms um, so we need to really probe for specific memories. So one of the things I will do with a client is when they say, well, you know, I lost my home before I became homeless or yeah, my mom died. Um, I, and then, and it was sad <laughs> or something. Um, so can you tell me a specific memory about her, a specific memory? So again, people often talk in general terms, but asking for, well, tell me about a specific memory. And they might say, well, I can't think of one. And then I, I might encourage them, okay, well, let's just take a couple moments and then sit quietly, maybe walk them through a minute or two of a, a breathing exercise and ask them to consider, well, what's, what, what's a memory that might come to mind? It doesn't matter, it doesn't, you don't have to choose one special one, but any memory. Um, and then often if I ask them, okay, let's just take a moment and maybe do a couple of breaths, deep breaths, attention to breathing. And then one will come to mind almost always with clients. Not always probably, but almost always. And then asking them, well, can you tell me what was happening? Where were you? What did you hear? What did you see? And then clients will often talk about their thoughts and not their feelings. Well, I was thinking this was such a terrible event, or I was thinking, how am I going to be survive without her? Um, and I think that's fine. Well, that's 
I, I really appreciate hearing what, what you thought. Now I'd really like to get to your emotions because I think it's really important that we talk about your emotional feelings. Um, and they'll say, well, I don't know what I felt. So I might ask them, well, what are you feeling right now as you're telling me about this? And then they'll often say, well, I feel like I don't know how I'm gonna go on. And I might say, yeah, I appreciate hearing about your thoughts. Let's try to understand what you're feeling. And this be, again becomes part of what um, can be, again, the heart of grief therapy, I think. So I, I have a couple of just little vignettes to, to go over, but I had this one client who I mentioned last week, uh, an older woman whose husband had died. He died kind of suddenly of a heart issue. Um, they had called, he was having some kind of heart problem. She called 911, the ambulance came and took him and she did not go to the hospital. Um, I think it was in the middle of the night and she was gonna maybe go the next morning. She did not go to the hospital. He died in the hospital and she felt bad that she hadn't been with him when he died. Um, and when, and that's about all she told me at first. And then I said, well, we're gonna, you know, and she was very depressed and anxious and her grief was showing itself in a really serious depression with some anxiety. Um, and she said, well, why do I need to talk about it? That happened, you know, a couple of years ago. Why do I need to talk about it? And I tried to explain a little bit of psychoeducation about when we don't talk about our feelings, they can get suppressed. And often depression is a sign that we have suppressed or depressed emotions that we haven't talked about. Um, or anxiety also is often a sign that there are feelings we are scared to get in touch with. Um, so I asked her to tell me again, the story of when he died and to tell me a little bit in more detail. And we only did a little bit at a time in any one session um, because she couldn't tolerate very much. And she was also a woman who tended to somaticize her feelings. So she had a lot of aches in her body that got, would get worse if she felt overwhelmed by emotion. Um, so I had her tell me the story of his death again. And, and I hadn't realized that she hadn't gone with him to the hospital. And that came out the second time she talked about it. And then I asked her, you know, again, a few weeks later to talk about it again and to tell me more about her relationship with him so that she would talk about, she talked as if it was such a loss that he died. Um, and then probably about the third or fourth or fifth time we were talking about the relationship is it wasn't until then that she told me that, well, he spent a lot of time not at home and I think he was having an affair and that that was a big part of what was hard to talk about it because she was so, angry and betrayed and hurt by him about his infidelity. Um, but it's really, you know, had to go slowly. So another client, um, you know, who, who talked about the loss in the first session and said, well, I've already talked about it. 
So again, I did a little bit of psychoeducation and helped her go through the whole loss event, um, slowing it down and asking for detail. So when clients are used to numbing or distracting from their feelings, um, you know, this is a technique we can use. Like, what are you feeling in your body right now? What might these bodily sensations be telling you about how you feel emotionally? So I, I don't know if any of you, I've been, over the last couple of years, I've listened to tons of podcasts. I don't know. I've just, I didn't used to do podcasts, but I've been doing a lot of podcasts. And one that I really like is by Tara Brock. Um, and I've heard, and I also read some of her books. But she talks about a process called that she calls RAIN. Well, it's called RAIN, R-A-I-N. And it's based, she didn't develop it. It's based on a Buddhist teacher. But I think it's a handy, I've been incorporating it in my therapy more, which is a, it's a, a four steps to where you try to help the person recognize that they're having some kind of reaction, emotional reaction. You ask the person to allow it. So this isn't so much, this process, this isn't so much of, with someone that is really numb from their feelings. This is someone that's a little further along. What you want to help them recognize the feeling and then allow it to really let them have the feeling, walk them into feeling the feeling. And so like with the little role play, if, if that, if Alice were in a situation where actually feeling sad wouldn't be threatening or wouldn't be overwhelming, which from this, the description of the situation, I don't think I would do it quite yet with Alice, but with somebody else who wasn't about to lose their home, I'd say, okay, can you sit with that sad feeling? Okay, let's take a couple more deep breaths and let yourself feel the sadness right now, which is really uncomfortable. You know, most people that have trouble grieving have had trouble feeling, whether it's sadness, anger, anxiety, fear, whatever it is, but help them to um, sit in the feeling, um, allow the feeling, feel the feeling, and for a few moments to really kind of hold their feet to the fire, so to speak, not for a long period of time, but for a few moments. And then in her acronym with investigate, really trying to understand where does this feeling come from? So then it's once you've really helped them to feel and sit with the feeling, okay, what happened? What's the sadness about? Um, what's it like, you know, this house that you, let's say, I don't know if this is true or not, lived in with your children as they were growing up and you have to give it up. What, um, what does the house mean to you? Um, tell me stories about the house. Tell me stories about your partner and your children. And that would be a long period of talking about it and then going back to the feeling. And then her, she has nurture, which is okay. What does that sadness need? What do you need to soothe or comfort or have compassion for that sadness? And, and here, you know, there's a lot more talk these days about self-compassion, but helping a person um, either find comfort from others or give themselves comfort. So this is a handy acronym that I think really can guide, can guide a therapeutic process. 
any thoughts or questions about this about this um, technique? So this is what you do once they kind of process the grief a little better? Yeah, once they're at a place where they can process it a little better, yeah. So not like the kind of client we were just talking about and not people that are, probably not people who are homeless, people that are in a more stable situation. Other techniques that can help with helping a person get into their feelings that haven't gotten into their feelings. So I use a feeling chart. I have one on my desk. I have one handy um, with adults as well as children. Actually, I don't really see children, but I use it with my adults. There are, <clears throat> you probably all know this, but I wanna show you a couple other examples of feeling charts uh, here. Okay. So there are, if you, if you put in Google feeling chart, or if you were to Google feeling wheel. So for example, this is a feeling wheel, which, you know, you can buy, you can, I didn't put it into my PowerPoint because I didn't pay for it, <laughs> but I find this actually too overwhelming. There, I don't even remember how many feelings are on this wheel, but some people find this helpful, particularly because if you use like the inner circle is like two, three, four, five, six, seven main feelings. And then you can kind of go off into more, oh, what's the word? Um, oh, there's a word for it, but more detailed subtypes of those feelings. And the more people can identify how they feel, the more they can really kind of kind of understand some of their um, their feelings and process it. You know, th this is another feeling wheel. Oh, shoot, shoot, whatever. This one. <clears throat> anyway, there's lots and lots of options, and I find these can be super helpful with a lot of clients. So we'll have one more session next Wednesday, June second, from nine to eleven. I hope you have a good week. Bye, everybody.